0: Sun. You can hear their hearts beating loud Can't keep those California Indians down Hello everyone, you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. From Marcus Lopez, I'm your host, Larry Smith. The Canadian government established what I
1: call Institutions of Assimilation and Genocide. These institutions were designed to kill the Indian in the child by forbidding them to speak their language which disconnected them from their families and communities. Some people refer to these institutions as residential schools. I don't call them schools anymore because no school I ever attended had children buried in unmarked graves.
2: What it does is ensure that the death penalty or life without the possibility of parole, Elwa, will not be imposed on a person who did not kill or intend that a person died during the commission of a felony such as robbery or
0: burglary, arson, etc. Today on American Indian Airwaves, the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues, the Canadian government's violent legacy of Indigenous residential schools, and the international call for justice for First Nations peoples within the nation-state of Canada and to California, where we'll hear from a longtime social justice advocate on SB 300, the Sentencing Reform Act of 2021, which is a compassionate release bill targeting incarcerated peoples in the state of California that are wrongfully serving a life sentence for misdemeanor crimes. All that and more here on American Indian Airwaves.
3: You can hear when the
0: In the first segment of today's program, we go to the United Nations for the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues, which is a high-level advisory body to the Economic and Social Council. The forum was established on July 28th of 2000 with the mandate to deal with Indigenous issues related to economic and social development, culture, the environment, education, health, and human rights. Since 2000, indigenous peoples throughout the world have been and continue participating in the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues as an international mechanism for articulating grievances to the international settler-colonial nation-states. From April 25th of 2022 to May 6th of this year, The United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues is being held at the UN headquarters in New York. This year's theme is Indigenous Peoples, Business, Autonomy, and the Human Rights Principles of Due Diligence, Including Free, Prior, and Informed Consent. And in the first segment of today's program, we'll hear excerpts from the UN Press Conference Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues held on April 25th of 2022. We hear from Roseanne Archibald, who is currently the National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations, the first female National Chief of the Assembly First Nations, and she's formally calling for the United Nations to launch a formal investigation into the Canadian government's role in violating the human rights of Indigenous peoples and their First Nations associated with Canada's violent legacy of residential schools and Canada's acts of genocide.
1: So uh, During this international decade of indigenous languages, I'm grateful to be here to talk about the impact of Canadian colonial genocidal policies and how they decimated indigenous languages and cultures across Turtle Island. The Canadian government established what I call Institutions of Assimilation and Genocide. These institutions were designed to kill the Indian in the child by forbidding them to speak their language, which disconnected them from their families and communities. Some people refer to these institutions as residential schools. I don't call them schools anymore because no school I ever attended had children buried in unmarked graves. Thousands and thousands of our children died in these institutions. This year alone, we had recoveries into Chemlips, 215 children, Cowasis, 751 children, along with seven other communities. The recovery of our children is not over. We still have over 130 institutions to search. We are seeking justice and accountability from governments and churches. Canada and the other UN member states must not look away. We invite the world community to stand with First Nations to listen, learn and reflect on this tragedy that is shared by the US and Australia, who also had similar institutions. I'm calling on the UN Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, along with other Special Rapporteurs, to conduct full-fledged investigations of the circumstances and responsibilities surrounding these institutions, including full redress, criminal prosecutions, and sanctions and other remedies for human rights violations, including genocide. Canada must not be allowed to investigate itself. Please help us ensure that something like this never happens again, not just to us, but to anyone. The intergenerational trauma from these institutions is evident in today's children and adults who don't speak their language fluently. Our language is vital because it connects us to everything. Our families, our communities, our land, our nationhood. During this international decade of indigenous languages, let's rebuild our languages and cultures which will contribute to vibrant communities where our children can sing and talk in the language of our ancestors. I thank you again for welcoming me here today. (laughs) Nenanaskamun <laughs> Gasakitan. in my language means I am grateful, I am thankful, I thank you, and Gasakitan means I love you. Um, we will now take questions from the floor. Please state your name and organization before asking the question. Thank you. Uh,
4: thank you. My name is Ibkissam uh, from the Daily Arabic Al Arabi Al Jadid newspaper. Uh, so I have two questions. The first one about uh, you said or you asked. Uh, f- first of all, thank you for the briefing. It's really great to have you here. You you said that you would like the special reporter to investigate or the in the, the issue of um, uh, the latest discoveries in Canada and. Think, uh, and you don't want that the Canadian government investigate that. Could you please explain why? Uh, and my other question to both of you, um, it's about the issue of trade. It's very often that trade um, um, also goes against uh, the, the way trade is handled in many times. Uh, it uh, goes against uh, on the costs of uh, land of uh, indigenous people, whether water and... Uh, and many other issues. So what, how would you like consumers to be aware of that? What do you think an average consumer in the US or in other countries should do uh, and uh, no uh, not to be part of such crimes? Thank you.: Thank you. Um, with respect to the federal
1: government, it was their legislation and policies that created these institutions. And so, they can't investigate themselves. They're not impartial. They're in a conflict of interest. And we're seeing that with the sharing of files and information. That's been a real struggle in Canada to get those files on those children who attended those institutions and didn't make it home. So, that's why we are calling on the Special Rapporteur as somebody who is outside of Canada, who can be impartial and do a proper investigation of the genocide that has occurred in Canada, particularly with respect to our children. I'll just jump into the second question that you asked around trade. In Canada, recently we had a budget that was uh, tabled by the federal government and my concern about budgetary allocations to Indigenous people in Canada is that it's not tied to the, the way that Canada gains its wealth. All of the wealth in Canada is happening on First Nation lands, whether those lands are treaty lands or unceded lands. And so, it's important that governments start to move toward ensuring that First Nations have access to the wealth of their lands. It's it's a great injustice that some First Nations live in such poverty in a country like Canada when they could easily be benefiting from the resources of their land or from the taxation that's happening on their land. So I believe we we have some ways to go around the world in terms of having governments distribute the wealth to the people that it belongs to. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Archambault, um, Tristan Alton with GRIST. Um, I'm curious about in your call for an investigation, Uh, into the U.S. and Canada's uh, boarding school practices, if, uh, in your opinion, the U.N. could also help in investigation of the Catholic Church's role in this, as well as other religious organizations and and the role that they played in facilitating those um, institutions? What I heard you ask is about the role of the churches. Is that what your your question is? Uh, or if investiga- if there's a role for investigators to look into uh, church records, church uh, um, church background, just Catholic Church in general, in their role, or other churches uh, that ran those boarding schools? Yeah, I believe that the United Nations um, has a, can have a role in that particularly because we're talking about religious institutions that are global in nature. And as I, as you mentioned and I've mentioned, that there's a similarity between the US, Australia, and Canada, particularly on the issue of children who were detained, uh, imprisoned in these institutions for part of their childhood uh, with thousands of them dying. And so there is definitely a role for the UN to call on churches and religious institutions to make reparations and to apologize if they haven't already done so. We're still waiting in Canada for the Pope to do a formal apology on behalf of the church on Turtle Island on our lands. And that's one of our truth and reconciliation calls to action. And so the Pope did apologize partially in Rome to a number of survivors for what Catholics did and what educators did to our children. But the church itself needs to make that apology. And this, again, is another forum internationally where we can talk to other Indigenous people and gain that support so that we can move forward, uh, particularly with healing this issue. You know, it's when we talk about genocide, it's such a harsh and tragic um, event that happened to our children. At the same time, we have to find that healing path forward, and I believe the UN can be a part of that.
3: Yeah, Archibald, my name is Marco belair Sirino. I'm working with Le Devoir. It's a Canadian national newspaper. So uh, I was uh, wondering, how was the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada insufficient? I thought it was an independent uh, commission. And um, is an investigation by the United United Nations Special Rapporteur essential to a reconciliation between the canadian government and the first nations in canada
0: and you're listening to american indian airwaves We're listening to excerpts from the United Nations Press Conference Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues held on April 25th of 2022. We're listening to Roseanne Archibald, who's currently the National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations in the Nation State of Canada, speaking at the press conference.
1: The first part of your question is about the TRC and I wasn't clear if you're asking whether it's insufficient, like whether the actual report is. Is that what you're asking? I'm not clear on the first part.
3: Yeah. What? Uh, let's say. Why do you ask another report on this situation that was covered by the Truth and uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, independent commission?
1: Well, like many things that the federal government does, and most governments actually, they're really great at commissioning um, reports and uh, launching inquiries and even launching the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Those are always very successful tasks. Where governments fall short is on implementation. So if you look at those 94 calls to action, I believe that less than 20 of them have been fully or partially implemented. So you're talking about 74 of them that remain incomplete. And that report was done, uh, you know, how many years ago has it been now? that it was commissioned. It's five, five years from the, or seven years from the day they started and five years from the end of the, the commission, I believe. And we still don't have a majority of those TRC calls to action completed. So we need to accelerate that. I've been calling on the governments to accelerate the implementation of the TRC calls to action since I've been elected in July of last year. And so I've called for a joint action plan. I've uh, made, uh, you know, pleas and uh, call for this process, but nothing's been done. So that's on that question on the TRC. The second question I believe you had was about why we have to go outside of Canada for an investigation. The RCMP, I'm not sure if Canadians and the world knows, but the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, which is the federal police organization, would come into our communities and take our children forcibly, and they would threaten parents with arrest. There were threats made by the police as they took our children away. How can that organization investigate itself or investigate Canada? It can't. And Canada as a government established those institutions through policies and legislation. How can they possibly be independent and impartial when it shows that they are culpable and guilty of of the deaths of our children? So that's why we have to go this international route and why we're asking for it. And thank goodness that there is a place that we can go outside of Canada to look for this justice and accountability for our our children, for our little ones.
3: Necessary to uh, the reconciliation between the First Nations of Canada and Canada, the uh, exercise of the Rapporteur special of the United Nations? Is it a a condition for the reconciliation or it's possible without this uh, special uh, inquiry that you are asking today?
1: It's absolutely essential to reveal the truth and it is absolutely essential for reconciliation and healing in Canada, for sure.
4: Was there a request uh, filed or t- t- to the repertoire uh, or the UN uh, to uh, carry out such investigation? Thank you. Sorry, you were asking if we've already submitted done? If you already submitted a request yes. or,
1: uh, yeah. Yeah, we wrote to uh, the United Nations High Commission on Human Rights, High Commissioner, and made the request formally for the Rapporteur to, be, um, to do that study and investigation. So the letter has gone out. I, I don't remember the exact date, but we have not heard back yet. The other thing that happened last year, which I want to address as National Chief, is a number of lawyers went to the International Crimes Commission, the ICC, I believe, and they were turned away, in terms of looking at uh, whether there were gross violations of human rights uh, with respect to those institutions, and and looking for the remedies for genocide. And I believe that we're going to continue to press on that ICC um, to also look at this situation in Canada with respect to our children who went to those institutions and those children that died in those institutions especially.
0: And that was Roseanne Archibald who's currently the National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations in the nation state of Canada. She was speaking at the UN's press conference permanent forum on Indigenous issues on April 25th of 2022. From April 25th to May 6th of this year, the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues is currently being held at the United Nations headquarters in New York. And that concludes the first segment of today's program here on American Indian Airwaves. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. In the next segment of today's program here on American Indian Airwaves, we discuss the prison industrial complex system as it pertains to the state of California. Indigenous peoples are disproportionately incarcerated at higher rates compared to any other demographic within the politically defined borders of the United States. There are many incarcerated indigenous peoples and people of color who are wrongfully serving life sentences for misdemeanor crimes that they committed within the state of California. There is a movement to reform California's state prison laws, particularly with Sentence Bill 300, the Sentencing Reform Act of 2021, which, if passed, would give judges the discretionary powers they need to ensure that people who commit misdemeanor crimes where a murder has occurred are not sentenced to life sentences. Today on American Indian Airwaves, Marcus Lopez and myself speak with Jerry Silva, longtime social justice advocate who is the coordinator of Families United to End Life Without Parole. She is instrumental, along with many other individuals and organizations, in supporting SB 300, the Sentencing Reform Act of 2021.
2: LWOP stands for Life Without the Possibility of Parole, or as we call it, the other death penalty. When you are sentenced to die in prison, you are sentenced to die in prison. It's a death penalty. So that's what that means. What can we do? Well, our main purpose is to end the law. Um, we are formed from among the families, as our name says, of people serving this death sentence. Um, we advocate for changes in the law, which will be... I guess the subject of of what we're going to talk about today, we held rallies and we lobby rallies in Sacramento. We have one upcoming in August. We lobby um, either virtually or in person the senators and assembly people. We definitely try to build support among the populace because, you know, everybody, we've seen it in history. Mass movements change things. And that's what we need. We need a mass movement to, you know, change the criminal legal system all the way around. LWAP is just one of the issues, right? Life without parole, LWAP. So that's
5: me. You know, uh, yes, Jerry, thank you so much for explaining that to our listeners. I was looking at some information regarding um, the Native American people and uh, showing that little data exists about the over-representation, I got this from Prison Policy Initiative, but that out of uh, over 10,000 Native people locked up in local jails, and that Native jail populations is up a shocking 85 percent since since 2000, and the number of people in Indian country jails increased by 61 percent between 2000 wow. to, and twenty eighteen. And that's the total population of native people living on probable lands have actually decreased slightly, but that they're increased and are criminalizing native people because of the of the ever increasing rates. And what, and the, so this issue that we're about to about to talk about involves many Native people and their families and the residue effects of that. We'll talk about that later. But that the government publications, the race or ethnicity, often omit Native people from their classifications within the penal system. So it gives you a little background on that. And and within the state of California, Jerry, how many people are we talking about in this category?
2: Uh, There's about 5,200 people sentenced to life without parole or the other death penalty. In California, nationwide, that number is about 55,000.
5: And then within this, now let's get into the aspects of Senate Bill 300. What is it? What is it called? Talk about that for our listeners, please.
2: Okay, so Senate Bill 300, introduced by Senator Dave Cortese, is the Sentencing Reform Act of 2021. We actually introduced it last year, but it became a two-year bill. And what it does is ensure that the death penalty or life without the possibility of parole, LWAP, will not be imposed on a person who did not kill or intend that a person die during the commission of a felony, such as robbery or burglary, arson, et cetera. The bill also addresses the injustice of a mandatory life without parole sentence by restoring to judges the discretion to impose a parole-eligible sentence should they deem it that it's in the best interest of justice.
0: And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Jerry Silva, coordinator of Families United to End Life Without Parole a California state-based organization. We're speaking on California Senate Bill 300, the Sentencing Reform Act of 2021, if passed by California state legislators, would be a major prison industrial complex reform law, ensuring that people are not sentenced to life without prison for committing misdemeanor crimes in the state of California. And now back to the interview.
2: If I can give uh, an example using one person um, of, of both of those things, of both how this person would benefit from Senate Bill 300 based on his conviction and what the judge in his case uh, felt. Is it okay to go forward with that?
5: Yes, go right ahead. That will be, really that'll, uh, that'll be really great.
2: Okay. So his name is Ernie Mora. Ernie was 23 years old when he participated in a robbery. I think it was at a market or something. He participated in the robbery. He did not have a gun. Someone died. He had no intention to kill that person, of course, and he did not kill that person. The judge felt really moved by his case and did not want to, even though the district attorney was what wanted to give him life without parole because it was felony murder, something called felony murder special circumstance. So the district attorney was asking for life without parole. The judge did not want to give him that. So in this case, the judge sentenced him to 25 to life. Four years later, after the district attorney appealed that sentence by the judge, because remember, The judge did not have the discretion to sentence him to life, uh, 25 to life. He did not. The mandatory sentence was life without parole. The judge did not have any decision-making powers. So the district attorney um, appealed it, and Ernie was then, after four years, sentenced to life without parole. Of course, he's Mm -hmm. been appealing it ever since, but the district attorney has so much power in these cases. And the the thing about, like, the death penalty and life without parole, these punishments are really, really extreme. And like you were just kind of mentioning how it's, it's hard to believe, other countries and the rest of the world, well, this country does, but other countries and most of the world don't impose those kind of sentences at all California not only regularly imposes them, but, re- as I said, requires the judge to impose them for any adult convicted of murder with special circumstance. So that's felony murder, um, murder in the commission of a felony, uh, such as burglary or robbery, et cetera. And, and the judge is mandated to sentence them to death or life without parole even if the person didn't kill or intend for anyone to die, even if the killing was accidental. There's another uh, case that's real shocking. Two men go into a liquor store to rob it. Um, the liquor store owner tells the, his assistant or the sales clerk, whatever, to shoot them. So the, so the guys go to run out. The, one of the men is shot, and he dies. The other guy runs out and gets away. That man is picked up. He is charged with murder under the felony murder rule, murder with special circumstances because they went in to, to rob the place. He's serving life without parole. This man had no intention. They had no guns, no intention to kill anybody, and he's serving life without parole. So and the stories go on and on. They really, really do. So it's 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 really um, and SB three hundred actually is taking a modest step to address the injustice because yes, it gives the judges back discretion. So a judge can use that discretion or not based on if they feel that this L mm-hmm. sentence is disproportionate, and instead they can. Uh, sentence a person to 25 to life but it also provides a sentence for a person who did not kill or intend to kill a sentence of 25 to life rather than Elwa, and that's fair right if a person didn't kill or intend for somebody to die what is that person sentenced to death by incarceration or um there are you know people on death row who didn't kill or intend to kill. So, I mean, this, you know, how they fill these the prisons with people year after year, the three strikes law, and the thing about life without parole is it guarantees a forever. It guarantees that 5,200 people, and they're added to, uh, it's added to one, one person every three days approximately gets life without parole. So the, the the prisons are going to fill up with these people unless we do something to change this law. And it isn't as if prison has had an impact uh, on public safety. It hasn't. Um, but it has destroyed families, as you were mentioning, the ripple effect and entire communities, including, of course, Native communities. And, and so it's just, you know... It's not mentioned, and we don't know about. But that's a community of people that's extremely vulnerable to the criminal legal system. Interesting statistics um, among, like, people serving um, death by incarceration. The at the common age for for the person when they are sentenced is 19 years old, and 73 percent of those sentences are given to people who have never been in trouble with the law, have no prior offenses. Seventy-three percent of these people that the average age is 19 have no trouble with the law. Um, Sixty-three percent of of people serving life without parole were under the age of 25. And, you know, when we look at the studies, they show that up to the age of 26, the brain is not fully developed. People make impulsive decisions, things that they would not do if they were more mature. So given those facts, we're, we're punishing people who weren't able to make the good decisions. And over 80% of the people serving this sentence are people of color. 68% are black or Latinx. So that's
0: what we're trying. That's Back what we're attacking, Jerry. Um, you uh, alluded to three strikes law, and we've been talking about uh, the judges not having judicial powers uh, for uh, for discretionary purposes in, in in these types of cases. And, and I know Marcus touched on you know the carcerality of Native American peoples, and certainly we can run through the gambit of statistics in various states uh, like North and South Dakota native folks uh, make up about ten percent of the state's population, but represent uh, thirty-eight about thirty-eight percent of the state's uh, prison com- mm-hmm. system. And and the same could be said up in Alaska, even Hawaii at one point. And in coming back to um, what both of you, what Marcus had asked and what we were talking about, and the significance and the importance of SB uh, three hundred and giving these judges the discretionary powers. For for uh, unique cases like this, or and and so I was wondering, you mentioned three strikes law, and I was wondering if you will walk us through kind of that history of incarcerality and and why it's so important to uh, to pass SB three hundred because the prison population, you know, in the United States is the largest compared to any other industrialized country and the prison population continues as uh, as you were saying has been increasing substantially uh, for over 50 years now and so sorry walk us through kind of that history you mentioned three strikes law but um, uh, what takes us up to the judges losing their discretionary power in cases uh, like the ones you're you're talking about
2: i will bet THEY LOST THAT POWER IN 1990 WITH PROPOSITION 115 VOTED IN BY THE PEOPLE. Um, THAT USHERED IN A NUMBER OF TOUGH ON CRIME MEASURES, MAKING IT MORE DIFFICULT FOR PEOPLE WHO um, ARE ARRESTED BY POLICE GO THROUGH THE COURT SYSTEM. It's, IT'S A CRIMINAL LEGAL SYSTEM and are then put in jail. So, you know, that was a big one. That was a real big one. The the prison boom, um, what started like in the 80s, and those are statistics that most are aware of, they built uh, 23 prisons. You know, um, in fact, one of the prisons was built in the early 90s to to house, third strike, well, three strike prisoners, because, you know, you you can get a second strike as well and you're going to serve double the amount of time. In the beginning with the three strikes law, the judges did not have the discretion. but there was a decision um, that came down somewhat early um, where the judges were allowed um, to moderate the sentence, um, I guess, in the interest of justice. Um, that was, the ju- I think it's called the Romero case. I, that's my memory. Is, you know, is that good around that? Uh, but that was a good thing, and that was a judge who uh, refused to sentence the person to twenty five to life for a minor offense. And the judge was named, I believe, Judge Mudd. So that was that was wonderful. I mean, why you know during the period where the prison population grew is also the period of in deindustrialization of the major cities. Where you know we had these major industrial uh, operating plants, whether they were in rubber or steel or shipbuilding or auto, and that all went away in the eighties. You know, little by little. And that's about the same time that they started building prisons, so kind of left from one means of making money to another, mm-hmm. because, you know, it is it is an industry, and that's why we call it the prison industrial complex. It's a huge industry. There's so many feeder industries that go into it, so, you know, just it, that goes hand in hand with criminalizing communities. Mm-hmm. and periods of time where the programs that were instituted instituted during the War on um, Poverty, back in the 70s, those programs started dying out, and that was overtaken by the War on Drugs. (laughs) And (laughs) and that War on Drugs happened, you know, where you saw so many drugs going into black and brown communities, so many drugs. Obviously, they didn't go in there because they were grown in there, you know, but you you don't have a job and, and, you know, those industrial jobs I was talking about, a person could graduate high school, get a job in auto, and buy a house, send their kids to college. Mm -hmm. Once that's gone away, it's going to have to be replaced by something and, and, you know, drugs was, was easy. It was an easy way to make money. And so you know, I think that's another definitely a contributing factor to it, but everything is based on 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 the economy, on uh, corporate rules, if you will. Um, it, it, you know it really is, and, and good people are eaten up in the process of all of this happening. And I just you know it's so important for the public at large to reali- realize that what we're doing is not justice. It's not just not giving people opportunities, not funding, you know, communities, be they native communities, black communities, brown communities, ensuring that the education is everywhere near as good as it is in a wealthy community and ensuring there's programs for young people to get into and job opportunities and that it's housing is affordable. I mean it's insane absolutely insanity, the housing, and, and where only the wealthy now can afford to own homes. So certainly the poor of all middle-income middle people of all colors are not able to afford what's happening. So the, the whole populace is being starved of the ability to live a decent life, uh, but it, uh, has always, falls more harshly On people of color, principally black, brown, and indigenous communities.
0: And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Jerry Silva, coordinator of Families United to end life without parole a California state-based organization. We're speaking on California Senate Bill 300, the Sentencing Reform Act of 2021, if passed by California state legislators, would be a major prison industrial complex reform law, ensuring that people are not sentenced to life without prison for committing misdemeanor crimes in the state of California. And now back to the interview. That's so true,
5: Jerry, and I'm glad that you brought that up, the world background on the, on the Prison Policy Initiative. They were talking about how the we are criminalizing Native people, and particularly, and you're talking about this um, percentages of, like, a 19-year-old, you know, barely coming out, and about the study graphically, if you want to go into that, you can go into and look at Prison Policy Initiative how this is over-representation of people of color down the line. And also we're talking about in the rural areas, in the urban areas, a lot of not only people of color, but Anglo-American people are still being rounded up, especially the youth, in their particular statement. Yeah. I wanted to just share that with our listeners, is that they're talking about the youth that obviously they were talking about the absolute number. There are fewer Native youth than they are white, black, Hispanic, or Asian youth, but the rate in which they are contacted with police and youth confinement facilities is alarming. And they conclude this, and I wanted to mention this because uh, this Senate Bill 300 we're talking about, it's a modest reform. It's not a radical reform. We're not opening up the gates. We're not doing anything like the opponents say or possibly say we're soft on crime and all that rhetoric, but it's given the discretion of a judge to look at these circumstances other than a very cut-and-dry situation. That's what I interpret it. But in this particular study, it says centuries of historical trauma are manifesting in Native youth as mental health and substance use issues that go untreated and can lead to status offenses acts that are only criminal because of one's age, like skipping school and other delinquent behavior, which makes Native youth worse off who have been swept up in their criminal legal matters and that are basically criminalizing our youth, number one. But secondly, in the background, which you just stated, but yet this um, this notion of this trauma generational trauma with Native peoples. If you are not, if you have, I don't know what the, the, the statistics are, but many Native families have people that are incarcerated, that are in parole, that are have problems with drugs and alcohol, that are both reservation and off the reservation, uh, we have oh, interviewed people many times about that situation and trying trying to find some remedies. But this centuries of social trauma, along with the African American population and the Pacific Islanders and the Chicano population and Native American population, we can see that is, that exists. How is it manifested? What's well, manifested? Because with all these different crimes of poverty, that's what it is—crimes of poverty—and they get in situations where the particular behavior is created in where you're doing a crime. If like what you said. It will put the money, will put the criminal industrial complex into all the different things you just said, like survivor-centered response to violence, accountability-based response to violence, and, and also a safety-driven response to violence and racially equitable response to violence. All these different things you're working on well, we're talking about families, real families in real communities that have real problems. That the if they're incarcerated, and the loved ones are in there, they're like very similar to. It's not a a category in which it's like these concentration camps that are incarcerating our young people. Jerry, why don't you? And that's kind of long, long winded, and and I'm sorry I did that, but. Talk about you know the bill that you talked about the Senate Bill three hundred where is it at this time? We we're talking about the the uh, modest uh, the modest sentencing reform. We're talking about the impact, and we're talking about the uh, it doesn't really create a situation where it's it's a very liberal policy, very modest policy for judges. Talk about why is it needed at this point in time? Besides the given the judges. THE ABILITY TO, MORE ADAPTATION TO CIRCUMSTANCES, OR THE MODEST SENTENCING REFORM. WHAT DO FAMILIES THINK ABOUT THIS, INSTEAD OF BILL 300?
2: OH, WELL, FAMILIES ARE VERY MUCH IN FAVOR OF IT BECAUSE IT OPENS THE DOOR. It what, ONE OF THE BIG THINGS IT DOES IS WE'VE BEEN STUCK WITH INSTITUTIONALIZED LIFE WITHOUT PAROLE SINCE 70-something, 72, 78, the the year just escapes me, but what are we talking about, like 50 years? And this will be, when this passes, the first dent in the armor or chink in the armor. We need to take, if no other country in the world does this, then I think we have to think there's something wrong with the morality in this country that loves itself is the greatest democracy and, uh, you know, Bush said the human rights and all these fine words and the fine songs. Look what we do. Look what we do to a section of the population. And I do want to mention where it's at and what people can do, but as you were talking about Native communities, I was talking to a friend inside, um, and we were talking about how the black population over a period of I don't know 30 40 50 years has not increased and you could look to the incarceration of black folks as part of the reason you are incarcerated during your uh the years where you're able to bear either bear or give uh you know be the person responsible for another life in, you know what I mean, how do you say, impregnate a woman. So all these years, um, people are taken away from their communities, so they're not in their communities, and they aren't able to bear kids. So it's no wonder that population hasn't grown. But I'm thinking that same thing might be true for Native uh, communities. I mean, we just, this country has wiped out, an amazing and everybody recognizes this amazing population of, of you know individuals and tribes and whatever that we laud today and and people look to for you know for um wisdom wipe them out and d- did the same thing with the black population right and it's mm-hmm. it's so criminal um would you want to say something marcus
5: Yes, I wanted to ask you where is it the legislation at this point in time? We're talking about okay. the, um uh, the um, um, you mentioned the senator that uh, that uh, introduced the Senate bill three hundred and and also the the um uh the level in which uh, uh senator uh, Cort- Cortese – court Cortese, Cortese. Yeah. Where is it this time? Ta- Cortesi? Where is it at this point in time? Where is it at, and what are you asking people to be aware of, number one? Secondly, um, any particular points of interest in which people are, uh, that are concerned about this can go to, and what can they do?
2: Okay, well, where it is at is it passed through the Senate last year in 2021. It is now with the assembly. So our huge push right now is to um, have, an, you know, have an effect on its passage. So lobbying your, your assembly people, if people can identify, and there's ways that you can identify who your assembly person is, you can write letters to that assembly person asking them to support this common sense, really common sense law. Again, Marcus, you said it right. This is not uh, challenging. This is not scary. You're not talking about uh, opening the doors and letting the whores out. This is just common sense. Who who puts a person to death, either by infection or incarceration, who didn't kill or intend to kill somebody? You, nobody does that. So um, I I will urge people that are listening to contact me um And shall I give my number or just my email address? Or does it matter?
5: Whatever you want to do. Okay,
2: let me... Okay, so call me. Really, this is so important. Uh, my number, I'm Jerry Silva. The number is 424-744-1156. That's 424-744-1156. Call me. I will send you information get you involved. um, Check out the website for FUEL Families United to End Life Without Parole, LWOP. And our website address is F-U-E-L-W-O-P. So that's like FUELWOP, F-U-E-L-W-O-P dot org. Um, We have information on Senate Bill 300, on the website and I really encourage people to get in touch with me Marcus thank you so much and Larry for um, allowing me to come on and talk about a really important matter I appreciate it well thank
5: you very much Jerry for showing up at American Indian Airways and talking about this very important issue Senate bill 300 that's for the state of California is that correct
2: yes sir it sure is
3: The moment of silence is over.
0: And that was Jerry Silva, coordinator for families united to end life without parole speaking on senate bill 300 in the state of california also known as the sentencing reform act of 2021 for more information you can call jerry silva at 424-744-1156 or visit the website fuelwop.org And that concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. A special thank you to our guest, Roseanne Archibald, who is currently the National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations, and Jerry Silva, Coordinator for Families United to End Life Without Parole. A special thank you to our musical guest, Aragon Star, Koopa Aina, and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in the studio of Burnt Swamp Studio in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time.
3: On the land that you tried to bury us For all the pain and all the suffering We take a stand We take a stand
2: We sleep caged against our fears Try not to become what we've endured Wearing our souls on the thread
3: The moment of silence is over